Thanks, Bethany. <coughs> Let's take a while this evening. We turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. It's very loud. <coughs> Feels loud up here anyway. All right, Genesis chapter 11. <coughs> And let's start reading from verse 1 this evening in Genesis chapter 11. It says, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said, Once to another, go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can gather together in this place this evening, that we can come, Lord, and spend some time gathered around your word. But we pray that this evening you would speak to our hearts, you would teach us through your word, uh, that Lord, uh, you would empower me through the spirit now, give me wisdom and guidance as I speak, that everything I say this evening would be your words, it would be your thoughts, and that Lord, you would be honoured and glorified now in everything that we do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Excuse me. And you may notice we've skipped over chapter 10. <clears throat> and there's a reason for that. Chapter 10, of course, is a list of names, uh, genealogies, um, and it's often referred to as the Table of Nations. And it is an um, interesting uh, study. Okay? If you want to spend some time studying out Genesis chapter 10 and, and look at each of the names and, and who descended from them, it is an interesting study. Uh, it gives us the link, if you like, between the historic nations of antiquity and prehistoric times of Noah. It gives us that link between the two. Um, The grandsons and the great-grandsons of Noah are each listed and they're identified with uh, a city or a country that was established by their descendants. So you can, as you read through the list, and it's good to read it with a commentator, sort of figure out where each of them went and where they settled, uh, who came from them, and and all those kind of things. So it is an interesting chapter, and it's something we don't find anywhere else in the world written down. Okay? It's, a, it's a unique chapter, unique history recorded for us uh, in the Word of God. And I think uh, verse 32 of chapter 10 sums up uh, the chapter well for us. It says there in verse 32, These are the families of the sons of Noah, and after their generations in their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. And so the whole purpose of the chapter is to give us an idea of how the earth was repopulated after the flood by the descendants of Noah's three sons that we looked at uh, over the last couple of weeks, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And this evening now we're going to skip over, as I said, and we're going to come to chapter 11 and turn our attention to uh, this passage which I'm sure we know well. Okay? We know well in the sense that it's referred to as the Tower of Babel and we teach it to the children at Awara and Sparks, we teach it in Sunday school and we, we know this story well. But this event chronologically actually occurs before chapter 10. 
Okay, it occurs before chapter 10, uh, before the, the written record there of all these names. It occurs before that. And the reason we can say that is because this event is alluded to throughout chapter 10. Okay, in chapter 10, verse 5, let's just go there and read a couple of verses. <clears throat> chapter 10, verse 5, it says, By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, every one after his tongue, after their families in their nations. So it talks about them having their own tongue. Okay, in verse 20 of chapter 10, it says, These are the sons of Ham, after their families, after their tongues, in their countries, and in their nations. Uh, verse 25 says, And under Eber uh, were born two sons. The name of, the, of one was Peleg, for in his days was the earth divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And then if you drop down to verse 31, it says, These are the sons of Shem, after their families, after their tongues, in their lands, and after their nations. And so right throughout chapter 10, it talks about this division that took place, and it talks about them having their own tongues. Now, if we read chapter 10 without a knowledge of chapter 11, we would wonder how this all took place. Okay, how did this happen that they have more tongues, they have more languages? How did this happen that they end up being dispersed? And we might wonder what it means there in verse 25 when it says that in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. We might wonder what that means. And so these questions are answered for us here in chapter 11 in the first nine verses. And this event before us this evening reveals the foolishness of rebelling against Almighty God. <clears throat> the foolishness of rebelling against the plans of God, against the purposes of God for uh, this world, for mankind. You know, Solomon summed it up well in Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 21. It says this, There are many devices or plans in a man's heart, Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. In other words, man comes up with lots of great plans, but in the end, God's counsel, that will stand. God's plan, God's purpose will be done. <clears throat> and that's exactly what we see here in chapter 11. Mankind made a plan. They made a plan and God intervened to make sure that his will was done. And so this evening, first of all, we see the rebellion of man, the rebellion of man. And we read there before, verses 1 to 4, but let's just read there in verse 1. <clears throat> it says, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Now, chapter 11 begins, first of all, by reminding us of the fact that until now, Mankind has spoken one language. Okay, until now they've all been of one language. That's how it starts out. Okay, and the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. Okay, the writer is reminding us of, of where we're at. Okay, so he's making sure we understand this is before the events of chapter 10. This is before the genealogy, before everyone spreads out. This is the cause of that. Okay, everyone's of one language. It sets the scene for us for, for what is about to occur. You see, because mankind is of one language, there is a unique unity amongst mankind. Okay, a unity that really doesn't exist. Even today, I mean, a lot of the world speaks a, a common language. Okay, uh, people can understand each other. But even today, we're separated by this. This is a barrier. Okay, and because of this, because there was one language, there was this unique unity amongst 
all of the descendants of Noah. There's this strong bond between them all. And it's this strong bond that leads to the reluctance to spread out okay, around the whole earth. It's this that leads to them saying, we want to stay together. And in verse 2, we learn of the movements of mankind after they came off the ark. Okay, in verse 2, it says, And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And so here we learn of their movements. Okay? Noah and his three sons and their wives have come off the ark, and afterwards they make movement. Okay? They don't stay in the vicinity of uh, Ararat, in the region where the ark settled. They actually travel from there. We're told that they journeyed from the east, and they came to the plain of Shinar, okay? and they dwell there. And so they didn't stay where the, the ark had come to rest. They moved on. They're migrating. They're searching here for a place to call home. Okay? They're searching for some good, suitable land to dwell, to set up a settlement, and to, to begin their new civilization. And that place that they find is this lush, fertile plain in the land of Shinar. Now the words, from the east, okay, it says there in verse 2, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east. As you read those words, it would at first suggest that they're traveling west. Okay? If they're traveling from the east, then they're coming from the east, they're traveling west. Okay? However, the phrase in the Hebrew is of uncertain meaning. And most commentators believe that it actually should be translated eastward. Okay? And so the idea would be that they were traveling eastward. Okay? They traveled east from Mount Ararat, from the region of Ararat. So they traveled eastward until they came to this plain of Shinar. And that makes sense. Because you see, throughout the Word of God, Shinar is identified with the Babylonian region, okay? southern Mesopotamia, okay? which is southeast of the Ararat region. Okay? So if it's saying eastward, it makes more sense. It fits with what we know. Okay? Uh, so it seems that this was talking about that they traveled in a eastward direction, okay? eastward and traveled south as well, away from the Ararat region. And it seems that as they travel, they're not satisfied with anything anywhere along the way until they come to this lush, fertile plain. And in this, in this plain, the plain of Shinar, there are two rivers. Okay? And these two rivers are called the River Tigris and the River Euphrates. And perhaps the region reminded them of the region before the flood. Perhaps it reminded them of things that they knew before the flood came. Remember, it's Noah and his sons. Okay? They're, they're leading this. Okay? And so perhaps the region, as they look upon it and they see these two mighty rivers, it reminds them of the pre-flood world. You see, back in chapter 2, we read of these two rivers, well, rivers with these names, okay? Genesis chapter 2, <clears throat> verse 14, it says, The name of the third river is Hidekel. That's another word for Tigris, okay, another name for that river, okay? Uh, that is, it which goeth forth toward, uh, toward the east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. Okay, remember when we looked at chapter 2, we said that it's not likely that these are the same rivers because the world changes okay, with the flood. So obviously there's something about this region that reminds them okay, of the Tigris River, of the Euphrates River, and perhaps that's the, region that, the reason they settle in this region. Because okay? it's lush, it's fertile, it reminds them of the pre-flood world. And so they settle down and they establish 
a new settlement. You know, and as the years go by, okay, because there is years taking place here, years are going by here, the population continues to grow in this new fertile plain, and it grows to the point where there's now a decision to make. Okay, they have a decision to make. They can either now, because the population is getting so large, they can either migrate away, you know, separate into their own family groups and migrate away from this region, spread out, colonize new regions, settle new regions, and thereby fill the earth as God told them to. Okay, that's their first option. Genesis chapter 9, remember God had said in verse 1, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Fill the earth. That was God's command, wasn't it? Okay, as they came off the ark, to fill the earth. And so they came to a point where they had to decide, are we going to obey God? Are we going to spread out now, as God said, fill the earth with population? Or are we going to stay together? That's their second choice. They could choose to stay together with one centralized government and establish this great, powerful, centralized society here in the plain of Shinar. That's... Basically, there are two options. Either we spread out and become unique settlements with our own governments, or we have one centralized government controlling the whole world, essentially. Okay? That's the choices before them. And in verse 3 and 4, we know what their decision was. Their decision was, we want to stay together. In verse 3, it says, they, And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. <clears throat> and they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And so in verse 3 and 4, we see now their decision. Okay, their decision. They're going to stay put. They're going to stay in this place. And they're going to establish this grand permanent city and tower, which would be the center of the civilization, okay? the center of government in the world, essentially. And this was a decision that a man by the name of Nimrod seemingly had a large part in, a large say in. Indeed, he seems to be the leader of this rebellion. Now, back in chapter 10, we learn about this man, Nimrod. Okay, so go to chapter 10 with me. <coughs> Excuse me. Chapter 10 and verse 8 says, And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Uruk, and Akkad, and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. Nimrod. He's an interesting man, an interesting character. Nimrod's name actually means, let us rebel. An interesting name, isn't it? His father probably had plans for him. Let us rebel. And indeed, his name is reflected in his character. In his character. In verse 8, it tells us there that he began to be a mighty one in the earth. And in verse 9, it says that he's a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, the word translated mighty there speaks of someone who is a champion, someone who's superior in strength, superior in courage. They're a good leader in battle, essentially. The word hunter, where it says a mighty hunter before the Lord, 
That's the idea of him being a ruthless tyrant. It's the idea that he's a hunter in the sense that he bent men to his will. Okay? He was a hunter of men. A hunter of men. See, this is an image here in, in chapter 10. These words are an image of a man who rises to power, to prominence, as a ruthless tyrant ruling over the people. Okay, that's what he is. He's a ruthless tyrant. The people fear him. Okay, they fear him. And they follow his leadership because of it. And this man is filled with pride and he's determined to establish a kingdom, an empire in his name. And he does all of this, it says, before the Lord. Okay, it says he's a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now those words before the Lord, they mean in defiance of God. That's what it's saying. Okay, he did it all before the Lord. In the eyes of God, he was defying God. And so Nimrod, true to his name, rebelled against God. And as we saw there in chapter 10, verse 10, <clears throat> it says, And the beginning of his kingdom was, where? Babel. This is the beginning. This is the start of his kingdom, his empire. It starts with the city of Babel. And so he is the leader here of this rebellion. He's the one who's leading this whole uh, idea of rebelling against God. Under his leadership, the people decide they're going to rebel against the word of God. We're going to rebel against God's instructions, clear instructions, and we're going to stay put. You know, what we should point out here at this point is that Noah is most likely still alive. Okay, most commentators believe Noah may have even been alive when Abraham was about 50 years old. And so Noah is still alive as this takes place. He lives to 950 years. So Noah's most likely still alive during this time. You've got to also remember that Shem is still alive. And we looked at Shem and his godly character, didn't we? Okay, there's a reason why God chose him. He was a godly man. My point is, if they're still alive, it's hard to believe that they're complicit with this. It's hard to believe that Noah and Shem are following Nimrod's lead in this rebellion. Now, I know the word, it, it says that the whole earth was of one language and, and that they all do this. It's talking about the whole of mankind. But it's the idea that it's the whole of mankind in general. Okay? Mankind's mindset in general was let's rebel against God. It doesn't mean that there's no good people, that there's no godly. Okay? And so I'd suggest that Noah and Shem and perhaps others who listen to them are not part of this, okay? that they've separated. And some commentators go as far as to say that perhaps the Semitic languages is where their original language is preserved because they weren't part of it. Okay? That maybe the Hebrew language is the original language from before the flood. Okay? And that's a possibility. I'm not going to say that definitely is. But it's more than likely they're not part of this. They're separate. Okay? They're not part of this rebellion because it's hard to imagine Noah and Shem, these godly men, being part of this, this wickedness here against God. But the majority of mankind, the majority of mankind is following the leadership of Nimrod. And that includes the sense of all three sons. Okay? All three, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, they're all following his leadership. And as we read there in verses 3 and 4, they decide they're going to build this large, permanent city out of bricks with a tower in the midst. Okay? Verse 3, it says, And they said one to another, Go to... Let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime 
they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build a city and a tower, whose top may reach into heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now, in verse 3 there, it says that the bricks here were to be burned thoroughly. So they're going to kiln dry them, aren't they? Okay, they're going to burn them in a th- furnace to make sure they're thoroughly dry, they're hardened. And it says that slime was to be used for mortar, and the slime there is tar. And so they're using these furnace-treated bricks and tar to build, to construct this city and tower. That's significant because, you see, this type of construction is found in the Babylonian region to start with. Okay, That's what they built things out of. But it's also stronger and more enduring than other building methods. Okay, It's a strong method of construction. You see, the point is they were building this city and tower to last. To last. They were building this to be a monument throughout history, to build themselves a name, as it says there in verse 4. They were, to make, they were trying to make a name for themselves. And on this city, uh, Morris writes this. He says, This would be no naturally growing, haphazard accumulation of dwellings and business places. This would be a carefully planned urban center, each component designed for maximum permanence and utility, contributing to the optimum efficiency of the entire complex. You see, the fact that they decide to build this city and tower, it tells us this is a planned construction. Okay? This is not just, you know, they all started living there and built this house and this house and the city grew. No, they planned. We'll go over here and let's lay it out. Let's build this city. It's a planned city, a planned construction built for a purpose, built to stand the testament of time. You see, the city, the city was the statement of their rebellion. You don't understand that. This city is them defying God and saying, God, we are not moving. We are staying in this place. We're not going to divide and have separate governments. We're going to stay together and have one centralized government. We're going to defy you, God. The city is the statement of their rebellion. You see, so often, all we focus our attention on here is what? The tower. That's the only thing we talk about. The only thing we ever focus on is the tower of Babel. But the tower is just one part of the city. The city is the thing that they're doing here in defiance of God. And it's just as important as the tower, which we'll talk about in a moment. As I said, it was them declaring... We will not obey God. It was them saying, we will not disperse. We will set up instead this permanent residence and we will stay together. And they knew what they were doing. It says that at the end of verse 4, doesn't it? It says, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. They knew what they were doing. They knew God said, we want, I want you to do this. And they knew that's what they should be doing. Remember Noah and Shem, they're probably saying to them, this is not right. But they did not want to obey God. They did this deliberately in defiance of God. They defied His plan, His will. And they turned their backs upon God. And of course, in the midst of the city is this tower. This tower that they're building. In the midst of this city built in defiance of God, they're also building a tower. Okay, It says there in verse 4, it says, Let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach under heaven. 
Now the people in the city are not so simple or simple-minded that they actually think they can build a tower and reach up to heaven. Okay, that, that's clear. They're not stupid, okay? These people were very smart. They knew what they were doing. They didn't actually think they could reach heaven by building this tower. In fact, the words there in our, in our Bible there in verse 4 where it says, may reach, okay, whose top may reach under heaven. You notice they're in italics? The reason they're in italics is they're not there in the Hebrew. They've been added by the translators. You see, what the verse literally says is, whose top is unto heaven. That's what it says. It doesn't say may reach unto heaven. It says whose top under heaven, okay, or is under heaven. And so in other words, this tower was built unto heaven. It was dedicated unto the heavens. And this suggests that this tower was used to study the heavens. This tower was indeed used more than that. It was used to worship the heavens, okay, to study the heavens, the constellations, and then to worship the heavens. And this tower is known as, as what's called, sorry, a ziggurat. Okay, and they're found right throughout the region of Mesopotamia, there in the Babylonian region. You find these ziggurats. And they were built primarily for one purpose, religious purposes. That's why they built them, to worship the heavens, to worship their gods. And these ziggurats all follow a similar pattern. It's like they've been copied from an original design. They've copied the one that was at bay when they've reproduced it as they've gone. And Answers in Genesis writes this concerning this tower. So the top compartment represented heaven. The inner walls, in all probability, were decorated with blue glazed tile with the sun, the moon, and the five known planets, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, lined up along the plane of the zodiac. In the center of the room would be their God, seated upon a throne. Nebuchadnezzar later rebuilt such a tower in Babylon, which the Sumerians had called the building of the foundation platform of heaven and earth. The pyramids of Egypt and much later the great Mayan temples of Central America reflected the design of the original Tower of Babel. All those towers, all those constructions you can think of, whether it's the pyramids, whether it's the Mayan temples, they're all constructed with the same purpose, to worship the heavens, to worship their gods. Honor their gods. And they're all a reflection of this original tower. And so the city, as I said, the city itself, it spoke of their rebellion against God's command. Their determination to stay together. The tower is born out of that rebellion. It's born out of that attitude of rebellion. And it's them dismissing God. Dismissing His authority over them. And instead they turn to worship the heavens. And indeed it's here in Babel that the ancient religions are seemingly born. This is where they all began. Commentator Morris writes this. <clears throat> he says there, are, there is abundant evidence that all forms of paganism have come originally from the ancient Babylonian re- religion. The essential identity of the various gods and goddesses of Rome Greece, India, Egypt, and other nations with the original pantheon of the Babylonians is well established. These pagan deities were also identified with the stars and planets, the host of heaven. And as you look at Rome and you look at Greece and Egypt and Babylon, 
look at their gods that they serve, they're all very similar, aren't they? It's basically the same group. It's a worship of the heavens. It was all born out of one religion that spread. Okay, one false religion, paganism. And so it's here at the Tower of Babel that this arrogant rebellion, this arrogant rejection of God begins. It starts here. You know, it was like the people declared war against God himself. That's really what they did. Declared war against God. Go to Psalm chapter 2 with me just quickly. Because I think Psalm 2 describes or sums up the attitude of the people really well. Psalm chapter 2. Excuse me. Psalm 2 verse 1. The psalmist says, Why do the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder. Let us cast away their cords from us. It describes perfectly the attitude of the people here. Now, Babel. They said, Let us cast aside the bands of God, the constraints of God. You know, they took counsel together against the Lord. And they made this decision to reject, to rebel against the authority of God, to rebel against their creator. You see, man was full of pride, and in essence, they said, we don't need God. That's really what they did here. And so we've seen man's rebellion. And now secondly this evening, let's look at God's response. God's response. Go back with me to chapter 11. Verse 5, it says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel. Because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. And so secondly, this evening now, we see the response of Almighty God to this blatant rebellion against Him. You know, man had determined to resist. They had determined to stand against the very purpose of God for mankind. And they would now learn that it never pays to rebel against God. You can never succeed. They would learn that God is sovereign and that His purposes on earth will be done no matter what sinful man does to try and stop it. It doesn't matter how much they try and push against it. God's purposes will be done. In verse 5, sorry, it describes how the Lord came down to see their city and tower. It says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men builded. Now, of course, God didn't need to come down to see it, did he? Okay? God was well aware of what was taking place. God could see perfectly well. Okay? He, he was well aware of what was taking place. So this expression here speaks of God now moving to act. Okay? When he says, let us go down and see, this is God now saying, let's rise up and let's do something about it. Okay? This is God moving now to act, moving to intervene, to act as judge and pass judgment upon mankind. Now, we're not told how long it is before 
God, allow, God does something. We're not told how long God allows them to continue with their construction, continue with their work on the city and on the tower before he intervenes. Indeed, it's possible that they had actually even finished the tower. It's possible that they'd finished the tower and that they're just finishing the city, they're working on the city. You see, verse 8 may even allude to that very fact. In verse 8 it says, So the Lord scattered them abroad from, the, from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. It says they stopped building what? The city, not the tower. It doesn't even mention the tower. And so it's, it's possible that this verse is alluding to the fact the tower is finished. It's completed. And they're working on the city, and that's when God intervenes and puts an end to it all. So we can't say for sure how long God allows it to continue. But you know, one thing for sure, one thing we know for sure is that God is long-suffering, isn't he? God is long-suffering. God is merciful. We know that about our God. And so in all probability, God has allowed this to go on long enough, long as possible, if you like, to give man every chance to repent. Okay, Because that's what our God's like, isn't he? He's very gracious, very long-suffering. And so he's probably allowed it to go on, allowed it to continue, giving them every chance to listen to Noah and Shem and others and repent, turn from their sinful ways. But finally the time comes for God to act. You see, this rebellion had the potential to destroy mankind. You see, from verse 6 it's clear that you know, God knows what the root of the problem is. Okay? In verse 6 it says, And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one. And they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. God sees clearly that the unity of the people is the root cause of the problem. The unity of the people. You see, the unity, of course, was made possible by the common language. So you can trail it back. Okay, The common language led to a unity which led to this great wickedness. Okay? And so the common language, if you like, is the root cause. And God also knew that if he didn't act, he says there in verse 6, nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. You see, God knew the potential. God knew the potential of a unified, fallen, sinful people. God knew the potential of a one world ruler over the earth. That's me, doesn't it? Revelation. God knew the potential and the wickedness that would stem from that if they all were unified together against the Lord. You see, they had the potential here to return the world to pre-flood times, didn't they? The wickedness, the sinfulness, the violence that existed before God wiped it all out with the flood. The potential is there for it all to happen again. And so God determines that he will act and he will make man obey and spread out around the earth. In verse 7, it describes for us God's response. It says, go to, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. There's almost some uh, irony here in verse 7. Because God says here, go to, let us go down. He's almost imitating the people. Remember the people, they took counsel together and in verse 3 they said, go to, let us make brick. They took counsel together and in verse 4 they said, go to, let us build. God takes counsel in the Trinity 
And what does God say? He says, go to, let us go down. Let's go deal with this sinful people. It's almost God mocking the people, isn't it? There's irony here in God's response. Now, we said earlier that Psalm 2, verse 1 to 3, described the attitude of the people perfectly, taking counsel against the Lord. Psalm 2, verse 4, describes perfectly the response of God. Let's just go there. Just quickly, Psalm chapter 2. I'll just read from verse 1 again. It says, Why do the heathen rage? The people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves against, sorry, set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4 He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Sums up perfectly God's response. God's sitting in heaven watching all this take place. God saw everything they were doing and God laughed at their feeble attempts to stop his purpose on earth. Now man had taken counsel together against the Lord and now here we see God rise from his throne. It's always a scary thing. Man causing God to rise from his throne because of their wickedness. That's what happened. God rises from his throne here and God responds to the wickedness of man. You know, if man would not obey his simple instructions and fill the earth, God would make them fill the earth. And so God does this by exercising his power. And we saw there in verse 7, it says that God confounded the language of man. God, in one simple little act, stopped the whole thing, didn't he? He confounded the language of man. He made it impossible for them to continue the work, to continue to remain together. You know, in a moment, you can imagine it, can't you? In a moment, this grand city that they're constructing, this great tower they're building, or have already built, in a moment, this place is now a place of confusion, utter confusion, utter chaos. People who were working together can no longer understand one another. You can imagine that people are now shouting at each other in frustration getting angry at each other, fighting with one another. You know, Nimrod's on his throne commanding people to do things and they're ignoring him. They don't understand what he's saying. You can imagine his frustration and anger. You see, this once unified construction site quickly turns into a place of chaos. And it wouldn't have taken long for the people to tire of this and to separate into their families and pack their bags and head off to find their own place to live and to call home. And that's what it says there in verse 8 of chapter 11. It says, So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. With this one simple act, God made the people do what he told them to do. God made them obey. They for, he forced them to spread out over the whole earth as he had instructed. And Morris writes concerning this, he says, eventually each family became a tribe and moved away from Babel to work out its own manner of life as God had intended them to do in the first place. As the population 
rapidly grew. Geographic expansion likewise was rapid. The stronger, more industrious and intelligent tribes took and held the more favorable regions. With resulting greater resources, they soon became great nations. The weaker and less ambitious families were pushed further and further away from the great centers of civilization, being forced to colonize new regions altogether before they could set about to establish their own particular culture. You see, this sets in motion a chain of events, doesn't it? Okay, it forces everyone to spread out, but then it forces those who are stronger, they take the good land, okay, the immediate areas, and others are forced to go further, aren't they? And further and further. You see, it forces mankind to spread, it says there at the end of verse 9, abroad upon the face of all the earth. They spread out over the whole earth now, the whole world. Mankind rapidly moves in a few generations and settles the whole earth. Now, it's believed that around this time there was an ice age on the earth after the flood, which means that the oceans are lower at this time, and therefore they exposed great land bridges between the continents, which makes it possible for the animals to go from the ark all the way down to Australia, for instance. It makes it possible for the people also to move all the way to all these continents before the ice melts and the oceans rise. You see, God knew what he was doing. It's God's timing, and then God separated the land masses with that rising of the oceans. You know, as the people are moving, as they're migrating to all these new regions, along the way, what would they have done? They would have had to have camped where? In caves, probably. This is where you get cave dwellings from. As they're moving, as they're finding these new locations, the first thing they're going to do is, we'll set up camp in a cave, We'll live there for a bit until we are able to establish a new settlement, a new village, till we can find the resources to settle down these new communities. This is where these cave dwellings come from. You know, the evolutionists would like to think it's a whole age. It's not. It's a short period of time as people move, as people settle in new places. Morris again writes this. He says, This process of migration and cultural development did not require long ages as evolutionists imagine. Rather, the entire world was inhabited within a few generations at most. Increasingly, in recent years, has archaeology been confirming that civilization appeared more or less contemporaneously in all parts of the world only a few millennia ago. See, archaeology once again supports what? God's word. Man settled basically the whole earth around the same time. It points to the truth of God's word. Now, God acted here in chapter 11 to crush man's rebellion, to force man to obey his will. You know, man had set themselves against God, determined to stay in one spot, make a name for themselves. But God in his sovereignty had other ideas. You know, man can fight all they want against the plan of God, fight all they want against the purposes of God. But in the end, God will accomplish his will on earth. You know, as we look around the world today, we see a very similar situation, don't we? Very similar situation to what we find here in chapter 11. Mankind is building their city and tower, figuratively. But that's what they're doing. They're building their city and tower in defiance of God, in open rebellion against the Lord. Now, mankind is determined to do their own thing. 
Mankind is determined to make themselves a name. Determined to reject God, to worship creation instead of the Creator. Mankind refuses to acknowledge God, refuses to humble themselves before Him. But you know, the day is coming when man will bow the knee. The day is coming when all mankind will humbly bow the knee before God. God will return and He will set up His kingdom here on earth. He will bring judgment upon sin, upon wickedness. And there is nothing that man can do to stop that purpose coming to pass. There is nothing man can do to stop the judgment of God. That's God's plan, God's purpose for mankind. Revelation tells us it's coming. And there is nothing mankind can do to push against that and stop the plan of God. As believers living in this world, we need to be careful that we don't get caught up in the rebellion of man, don't we? Be careful we don't get caught up in their rebellion. But rather that we stand apart, stand separate from the world like Noah and Shem. That we stand apart and we declare the truth and we plead with people to heed the truth. To obey God before it is eternally too late. You see, the day of His return is nigh and God will crush the rebellion of man. You know, Psalm chapter 2 verse 4 declares it perfectly. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this evening. And Lord, I pray that this evening we've gained a greater understanding of a passage that we seemingly know well. That Lord, we would understand the rebellious nature of man. That Lord, no matter how much man rebels against you, we can never stop, we can never halt or hinder your plans for this world. And Lord, we thank you and praise you that you are on the throne. You are in control. And Lord, may you help us as believers to stand firm in this day and age, to proclaim the truth so men might be saved before it is eternally too late. Lord, bless as we close now this evening. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.